Well, welcome back. We are excited to have you guys here. Hope you guys all had a great spring break. We're going to be back in Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, as you guys turn there, there's something I've always noticed uh, as you guys return from spring break every year. Uh, usually uh, we always have this Sunday that's about a week after your classes. And I always find from you guys, as y'all come back from spring break, a lot of y'all uh, at some level don't even remember what you did over spring break. It feels like a week back in classes, that beach that you were on, that ski slope that you were on, or that bed that you remained in until noon every day seems like an eternity ago, does it not? Uh, some of you guys, especially those of y'all who had tests this week, Oh man, does spring break seem like a long time ago, right? Some of you guys may not even actually uh, had a spring break. You guys were setting over spring break for those tests. And I've always thought to myself, is there anything more cruel, evil, and just sadistic than professors who give tests right after spring break, right? It's just wrong. Um, but either way, whether you guys have had tests or not, I always find, I always feel like spring break is always too short. It passes by way too quick. It's but a preview. It's but a trailer of summer that is coming, and yet it is but too short, and it is, passes away before you know it. I've often thought if only spring break could reach a little further, if it could be two weeks or if it could just kind of move us straight into summer and we blink and summer's here, that would be just wonderful, right? But it never seems to be that way. Uh, we're going to be back in Hebrews chapter 11 this morning looking again at the theme of faith. And I think faith is a little bit like spring break, right? Uh, spring break gives you a preview of summer. I think faith gives us a preview. It, it's a content that's looking us forward to the future as to what God is going to do. And thankfully, though, even though it is but a preview looking us forward to what uh, God is going to do, our faith has, has even more of a reach than spring break does. It does even more even in the present as we wait for the future. And so we're going to look, particularly as we continue to walk through and looking at some heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, we're going to see, particularly this morning, is where the, it was where faith reaches, where it takes us, what it does, and how it changes the present. In particular, we're going to kind of see that faith will reach us beyond geographic borders. Faith will take us even beyond death. Faith will take us even through suffering. And faith has a huge impact even on the present. Faith at its very essence is, is an unseen process as we walk and we live and walk with the Lord. And so we're going to kind of see through what is just a fascinating chapter as we kind of gather back here after spring break and kind of continue through, move through our book of Hebrews. We're going to be in this book and we'll finish out the semester. I promise you guys, if you come back next year, we will finish Hebrews. All right. Some of y'all might be feeling like this is going on forever. We're going to finish it this spring as we kind of wrap it up in these last few chapters. And so look with me, if you will, Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to be verses 13 to 40 this morning. And we'll leave chapters 12 and 13 for the rest here of the spring. Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 13 to 40. We're going to kind of start off in verses 13 to 16. And read with me, if you will. Uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us, All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to, re to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So we continue on in this theme of faith that moves through chapter 11. Really kind of one of the first things that we see this morning is that faith moves beyond geographic boundaries. If you guys remember uh, kind of where we were three weeks ago, which I'm sure you don't, uh, the writer of Hebrews was kind of walking us through some of the early heroes of the faith uh, that we really we find in the book of Genesis. Particularly, he walked us through the life of Noah, the life of Enoch, the life of Abraham, and even the life of Sarah. As he looks back on those people, he says in verse 13 that all of these died in faith. All of these great heroes of the faith of, of the early part of our Bible, the early part of the book of Genesis, they've all died in faith, but particularly they died in faith without receiving the promises. All of them had great faith that what God was going to do, a set of promises that he extended to these people, and yet none of them were able to see God fulfill those promises before they died. 
And as he kind of moves through, what we're going to see in particular is that he's going to begin to characterize these people that even though they never saw God bring fulfillment to his promises, they were still incredibly confident that God was going to do that. He says of them, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, they were so sure of that which was unseen. It was as if they had seen them. They saw those things and they welcomed them even from a distance. Even though they were distant in the future to be fulfilled, it was as if they were so confident of them that they had already welcomed them into their home. They were that sure of those things. They weren't just confident we're going to find that because of their confidence, they kind of became conflicted. And notice how they viewed themselves. A theme that we've talked all throughout the book of Hebrews as well, but it says that they, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They were so confident of what was coming in the future that they didn't experience in the present that they became conflicted and confused in some regards as to their identity and their place in this current world. He says that they confessed that they were strangers, they were aliens, they were those that were like vagabonds moving about and not having a home. And he kind of nails that down further. He says that if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had every opportunity to return. If you guys remember the story of Abraham that we kind of talked through a few weeks ago, Abraham, God comes to Abraham and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your homeland. I want you to go out to a country into a land that I'm going to show you. And he doesn't even tell him exactly where he's going to go or exactly what the land is going to be. But he says, I just want you to take off. I want you to go. And Abraham, as we look at the stories in Acts 7 and even in Genesis uh, 12, Abraham doesn't obey fully initially. In fact, God has to come to him twice and tell him, hey, I want you to leave. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your homeland and all that's familiar. I want you to take off. And as Abraham takes off and as the patriarchs follow Abraham, as they're all looking and waiting for God to bring fulfillment to the promises of a land that God was going to give to those patriarchs, none of them saw the land. None of them got to even enter the land. But all of them were so confident that they kept pressing forward. They kept moving forward in faith. So much so, they became those that were having left that which was familiar and landing and pursuing that which was unfamiliar. They became, in a sense, conflicted and living between two worlds and two cultures. There were those that had left that which was home and and were looking forward to another home. And yet, the writer of Hebrews says that that which they realized they were looking for ultimately was a land and a country that God was going to provide, one that they hadn't entered into. So there were people between two worlds who were, in a sense, lost. Um, In many ways, I kind of feel this a lot this past week. Uh, A lot of you guys know that I office here at our Southwood campus, uh, but I have a lot of meetings, and I oversee a lot of our small groups, and so I spend a lot of my week at our Anderson campus where I have no office. And so actually, I spent Monday morning here at Southwood, but I didn't return back to Southwood where I have an office until Friday morning. So much of my week and much of what my week looks like often as I'm at our Anderson campus, I'm moving around from one person's sofa to another, just looking for a place to do a little bit of work. All right. I'll land in sometimes in a Sunday school class and then women's Bible studies will kick me out. Children will kick me out. And then since land at Anderson, I have no place to lay my head or at least my laptop. All right. I have nowhere. All right. I'm just kind of like a, a poor officeless vagabond just moving around. All right. And waiting for a day that I can return to a land into an office that I can just have and stay at. All right. Now, that is not my life. And for the for the patriarchs, that wasn't their life either. They had no place to lay their hand. They had no place that was familiar. They were just moving around, waiting eventually for God to provide and to land them in a place that was going to be theirs. In fact, I think as we look through the scriptures, we see this often. It wasn't just for the patriarchs. It was from the New Testament church as well. Pilgrims, sojourners, aliens in a land that as God had chosen them, that had excluded them from the world around them. Now, this was the identity not just for the patriarchs, but for you and I as well. I want to ask you even this morning, what do you consider to be home? 
As you think about your apartment, you think about your dorm, even for you, this is just the place that you spend part of the year at because a lot of you guys went back home this spring break. You guys have two homes. You sometimes live between them. Some of you guys might have been traveling over spring break, living out of a suitcase, which is fun because you're on an adventure, but you can't ever find your stuff, right? You're like, where is my shoe? Where are my socks? I'm just moving around. I, I'm always in a different bed. I can't find my stuff. This is just frustrating. But that was really was the, the, the identity and the experience that these, these people had is they realized that they were so waiting confidently for something to come in the future that they were conflicted in the present. And I think because of that, because they weren't holding on to the present, they had a great ease and great movement and great willingness to, to leave that which was behind. They were so confident that God was going to bring to some, them something in the future that they didn't hold on to the present. In fact, I think in many regards, as we look at Genesis chapter 12, God gives to Abraham a promise, a promise that really, I think, is one of the first clear calls to missions. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God tells Abraham that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That in you, Abraham, I'm going to bless every single family in the earth, all the nations I'm going to bless through you. And really, as we watch the story of Israel, as we watch them move throughout human history, what we're seeing is that God is raising up men and women they are going to reach and, and, and bring proclamation of truth throughout the earth, throughout the nations, throughout all the families of the earth. But in this start in Abraham, it goes all the way back to the garden. If you remember, God commanded humanity, Adam and Eve, and he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Your call, your role in, as a human race is to fill, to populate and fill the earth and not just fill it with your presence, but ultimately as you move about in the earth to, to be my kingdom representative, to, to be my representative so that men and women can see the king who has created you and who is reigning and will one day bring back a kingdom. And then as those representatives, as we move through the earth, we're bringing about and carrying a forth and, and to, looking to establish his kingdom. And the, even though, though as we walk through the story of Genesis, what we see is that humanity fails at every single time. Right? What was the issue in the garden? The issue is that God or humanity didn't trust God. Humanity ultimately didn't want to let God reign and to let God be the authority in their life. And so they threw that off. They were prideful. They were arrogant. They thought they could be like God. It wasn't just in the garden, though. We see it also at the Tower of Babel. God told humanity to spread throughout the entirety of the earth. And yet, what does humanity do in Genesis 10 and 11? Instead of spreading throughout the entirety of the earth, what do they do? They, and since they instead gather in one place. And in that one place, what do they do? They build a city and they build a tower. Why do they build the tower? They build a tower because they want to be great in the earth's side. They want to have a name for themselves, and they're not so concerned with the name and the reputation and the glory of God. The greatest threat, I think, to missions and to our role and what God has called us to is always our own pride, and it is always our desire to, to allow our name to be great. And really what we see throughout the patriarchs' lives, and as we see, and we even see the church and, and the nation of Israel through the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament, it is those who realized that their ultimate home was in a world to come that were those that were commissioned and responsive to the commission God had given them. Those that, were real, that realized that this world is not where they were meant to be living, is not what they were hoping for, and not all that God had for them. It was those people who, who had a loose hold on the world that were able to let go of that which they thought was familiar, that which felt like home, and then they could move out into the world. In fact, this week we, we sent a, an email to some of our, our missionaries in some of our locations across the world, and one girl who's serving in the Middle East wrote this in response to our question of why did you leave home? Why did you leave America? Why did you leave all that was comfortable and familiar? And this is what she said. I would say what motivated me to leave the comforts of home in America was to reach people with the gospel. It seemed like a small sacrifice to make in return for people hearing the truth. The reality that I would be living in another country didn't cross my mind much. It was more difficult leaving people I loved, and yet I was hit with the reality of being a stranger almost instantly when I arrived here. I couldn't speak language. My blonde hair and light skin made me stick out tremendously. And day-to-day -day life was very different than the easiness and the yumminess of my home. 
being in this place where I don't feel 100% comfortable every day reminds me that we are all strangers on this earth. We are waiting for that day when we will be where we were created to be completely restored and in his presence. It doesn't matter if I'm driving my car in Texas or buying vegetables at a market in the Middle East. I am still in this earthly body. I'm still waiting to be completely satisfied and I'm still not at home. If we open our eyes to the people around us, the events that make the headlines, it is very clear, clear the world is not in the state God created it to be. I think this keeps me focused on heaven, dwelling on the hope that one day all of this mess will be gone and we will be free from sin and glorified with him. It is very possible to have this mindset in America. What is required is to take a step out of the routine and look around. This can't be it. He has promised much, much more. And that gets me really excited. That also makes my job of sharing the gospel so easy and natural. All of the people around me do not have the hope that something better is coming. They think this life is as good as it gets and death brings emotions of fear and anxiety rather than freedom and joy. You know the truth of what is to come, so orient your lives now for the lasting city where we, be, where we will be completely satisfied and fulfilled. I think the girl who wrote this just nails it out of the park. I think there is something about doing missions and stepping across to an unfamiliar place and culture that, that awakens a reality that is actually true, whether we realize it or not, and that's that we're not home. And that sometimes as we live in our home culture, I think you and I can be, in a sense, uh, blurry to, or that we can uh, not be sobered to the reality that this is not home, all right? Uh, I spent all yesterday planting flowers in a garden to make my home more homely, to make it more comfortable, all right? And some of that, and some of the, the, our natural tendencies, even as we move into a place, even as we set up shop in an apartment in a dorm that even you know is temporary, all of our life is about trying to establish a home base. All of life is about trying to establish a place that's comfortable, right? And I think some of the times as we do that, so much of our natural instincts is to land us in a place that we begin to realize and miss the fact that this is not all that God intends for us and this is not our home. And I think, frankly, the the reality of suffering, the reality of disappointment, the reality at times of dissatisfaction, of sometimes stepping even across the world into a foreign culture, awakens us to and sobers us to the reality that this is not home. This is not where God is going to fulfill all that he intends for us to see and to experience. And so for a lot of us, in the midst of the disappointments and the dissatisfactions and the frustrations you've had this semester, I'd say that those are opportunities for you to see and to realize that this isn't all that God intends. This isn't the kingdom that's coming. This isn't all that he's going to fulfill, that he's got something even better coming. And we are men and women conflicted, living between two worlds, waiting for that world and that kingdom to come that we're going to be invested in and be a part of. And so ultimately, I think as we watch and we look where this passage moves us, the next thing we're going to see is that, is that faith doesn't just move us beyond boundaries. It doesn't just move us beyond geographic borders. It doesn't just uh, allow us to see that, that we ought to be pursuing the right home, but ultimately it does something else. Faith moves us beyond death. And notice as he picks back up on the story of Abraham, notice what he does, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom God had said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead from which he also received them back as a type. Verses 17 and 19 kind of highlight really the, the pinnacle moment in Abraham's life. And if you guys remember the story, and we've been talking about it a lot throughout this year, that Abraham in Genesis 12 gets a set of promises that God does not begin to fulfill for a long time. That God tells Abraham in Genesis 12, not just that in all the families of the earth, they'll, they'll be blessed through him, but he also tells him, I'm going to give you a bunch of descendants. And it's actually going to be your descendants that are going to bring my blessing to all the nations. But as you move through the story of Genesis, Abraham is not getting a descendant. He's not getting a child. He's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting on God to fulfill his promises. And he's realizing there's no way God can fulfill his promises unless God provides him a child. But he's in his 90s. He's incredibly old and his wife is old and as barren as can be. There's no way they're going to have a child. 
And God does something miraculous and he brings a barren, woman, barren womb to life and he brings forth life and he gives them Isaac. And he even tells Abraham, it's in Isaac that I'm going to fulfill my promises to you and that all the descendants will be blessed. It's going to be in and through Isaac. And then later God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to offer up and to sacrifice your son in death. <laughs> what would you do? Obviously, I think it contradicts and it would have seemed absurd to Abraham, right? How could God call Abraham to do that when that seems to be completely contradictory to what God was doing and how God had worked in Abraham's life? He had already said, hey, he'd been waiting and then God provided. Why would God take back away? And not only did it seem contradictory to God's activity, I'm sure it seemed contradictory to his word as well. God had told Abraham, I'm going to bless all your descendants on all the earth through Isaac. All of my purposes are going to be fulfilled in and through Isaac and not through you. And then he comes back and he says, I want you to offer up and sacrifice Isaac. Abraham would have been flipping out. There's no way he could figure out why. We get one clue, though, I think, in verse 19, and where we find that, uh, that Abraham considered that God could raise Isaac from the dead. That if Abraham killed him, he realized, and he believed, even though he had never seen it, that God could actually move beyond death and raise one from the dead. Abraham believed that. And I think even more so, not just that he believed something miraculous, I think there's also a reality that allowed him to do this. I I think even waiting forever on God to fulfill his promises, and then finally God comes through and he gives him what he'd always wanted, a son. And he gets that son and then God comes back and he asks for that son back. And the only way that Abraham could have done that was one, if he believed God could do something miraculous. But two, if he was holding on to the promises and the blessings of God loosely. I think for me, often when I wait for something and I wait for something for a really long time, I'm far more inclined and likely to hold tight to it with a vice grip like of hold, all right? I've told you guys before, for a long time I wanted to get a flat screen TV. We got one at Christmas time, and the first thing I did was mount that bad boy to the wall and lock it down, all right? And that thing wasn't going anywhere, all right? It wasn't just to a TV, though, that so many of the things I've wanted in life that when God provided them, the thing I often do is hold on to them really, really tight, especially if I've waited a really long time. Some of you guys have been waiting a really long time for a relationship and God has provided that possibly and then it becomes really difficult to not hold it too tightly and to hold it in a way that doesn't honor God and to realize that all that he's provided you and all that he's, he's blessed you with is meant to be as an offering and as a means to worship him more greatly and not to miss the giver of the gift. And I think Abraham realized that the gift that he'd received was, was meant to be and to move him to worship. And so when God comes back to ask for it, not only does he believe that God can do the impossible, but he's not been holding on tightly to the gift. I want to ask you this morning, even the blessings of God that he's, he's distributed to you, how tightly do you hold on to those things? Do you think that they are for your benefit or do you think that they are for God's glory? Why does God bless why does he grant you his provisions and his promises? Is it so that you can selfishly hoard and enjoy it? One of these days you're going to graduate and you're going to get a paycheck and you're actually going to have some money for a change, right? Uh, and the question is, as God provides, will you hold tightly to it? Or will you hold it loosely and offering back to God all that he would ask for as opportunities come about? Whether it's money, whether it's relationships, whether it's provisions, whether whatever it is that God would provide, how tightly do you hold on to those things? I know for me, the longer I wait for something and then when I receive it, the more likely I am to hold it tightly. I think Abraham holds it loosely and because of that, he realizes that God can do something even beyond death. And I think he holds it loosely for a couple of reasons also. One, not just that he believes God could do the impossible, but he also realizes that God's fulfillment of his promises is in part now, but in full later. And not just beyond death that God could resurrect, but ultimately what God wanted to do, what he's seeing right now is but a preview and but a trailer of all that God wants to do. And so he's thankful for what God has provided, but it's but a glimpse of all that God's going to provide in the future. And so he's not that consumed in the present. 
And so what we see is, as Abraham moves forward is it's not just that he's going to see that faith reaches beyond borders, that it reaches beyond death, but ultimately it reaches beyond death and moves to the next generation. Notice how Abraham's faith impacts the generations that come next. Verses 20 to 22. By faith, Isaac, Abraham's son, blessed Jacob and Esau, Isaac's sons, even regarding the things to come. By faith, Jacob, Abraham's grandson, even as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, makes mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. What's going on in all the dying and what's going on with all the generations here, all right? I think what you see is at each patriarch's dying moments, the thing that they're most concerned with, the inheritance that they've been building and most concerned with passing down is not money, it is not wealth, it is not cattle. That which is the most prized possession, that which they've been building up and now passing down is their faith. It's their faith and their confidence in the promises of God, which is why Joseph, especially when he's dying, what he's doing and what he's concerned about is he's so confident that God's going to fulfill his promises that he's telling his sons, here's what I want you to do. I want you to keep my bones ready because when we finally get in the land that God has promised, I want you to have my bones ready. I want you to pick them up and bury me in the land, all right? I'm so confident that's where we're going. I'm so confident that God is going to fulfill his promises that keep my bones ready, all right? Kind of freaky and weird, but awesome, all right? These patriarchs were more concerned with the faith that they had and the confidence they had in God's promises than any other thing. For a lot of you guys, you're about to graduate here as a senior. Some of you guys may graduate in a few years. Some of y'all may be with us a lot longer. But whenever you do leave, the greatest thing that you can leave behind is not a GPA. It is not uh, leadership in an organization. Uh, it is not a great service project, all right? The greatest thing you leave behind is not a bunch of good doctrine that you pass on. The greatest thing that you can leave behind is your faith, your confidence in the person, the promises, and the purposes of God. How do you leave that behind? What does that look like? I think for a lot of us, I think we think too short-sighted. A lot of us think, well, hey, I just want to pass off what I know. If I can pass off what I know, the content of my faith, then we're good. Some of us think, no, what I want to pass off is a good service project. And so I know someone a long time ago came up with Big Event, and all those guys were out, and a lot of y'all might have been out uh, yesterday all throughout our community. Fantastic opportunity. makes a huge impact on our community. All right, but it is short-sighted. All right, it is a continuing event, but it is not transformational. It is not as significant as something else that you could pass on. Some of you guys have had a great burden for organizations and for needs here on campus, and you've birthed and you've founded and you've led organizations, uh, and you're going to leave them behind, leave them in the hands of some that will carry them on. I'll tell you, there's something even more strategic and important that you can leave behind than some organization that you founded. Something even more strategic than doctrine that you'll leave behind. Paul will begin to talk about that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And this is what he says. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul is going to begin to talk about this concept as a concept that I'm going to refer to as spiritual reproduction. The thing that you can leave behind is not just your faith as in the content of your faith, but what you can leave behind is going to have more impact on our campus here and more impact even one day on a family that you're going to enter into and that you're going to begin anew is a faith that's going to be passed down. Paul will talk about to Timothy about passing doctrine down. Notice, notice how non-short-sighted uh, Paul is. It says, the things, Timothy, that you've heard from me, I want you to pass these down to faithful men who are going to pass these down to others also. Notice what Paul's concern is, is for four generations, all right? Paul's thinking in in terms of passing things down. It's not just from Paul to Timothy, but Paul's thinking about from Timothy on and then from on from there, four generations that are going to come. 
And it's not just passing down doctrine, but it's passing down and leaving people behind that are equipped and enabled to serve and to produce every good fruit that God would desire. Ultimately, reproducing spiritual disciples. This is the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Uh, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I've commanded you. The call that you and I have received, the thing that we can pass down more than any other thing that's more strategic than any other thing in our life is that we can leave behind disciples. Not just be fishers of men, but be builders of men as well. I want to ask you as you get ready to graduate, what is it that you think you're going to leave behind? What is it that you want to leave behind? Maybe some of you guys think even beyond death, you think about your lives and you're building towards something that you want to leave behind. What is it that you're building up that you're going to leave behind? For the patriarchs, it wasn't wealth, it wasn't kingdoms, but it was a confidence in God and, and men and women who were walking with God and who knew God that they were leaving behind. And not just men and women who knew God, but men and women who were trained to allow and bring and lead and challenge and shape men, other men and women to know God as well. Ultimately, notice Paul's concern isn't just the passing of doctrine, but it's the equipping of men and women who can teach others to do the same thing. He says it like this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. It's not just the passing down of doctrine or to teaching, but it is the imparting of our lives themselves. And so as you walk through 2 Timothy, as you walk through 1 Thessalonians, as you look at these New Testament books, what you see is Paul uh, not just building churches, but building men and women who are disciple makers. My greatest passion for you guys is y'all, as you get a degree here at Texas A&M University and you spend some time with us, my greatest hope for you guys is that y'all become disciple makers, that you learn to make disciples. You're trained and equipped and enabled so that you can leave men and women behind who know how to make disciples. Not just that you're leaving some good doctrine behind from a Bible study. Not just that you're leaving a work project behind or even an organization that's going to do a lot of good works, but my greatest desire for you guys is that you would leave this place at Texas A&M University and your time here at Grace Bible and you'll leave as disciples of men. You'll leave as makers of disciples. You'll leave knowing how to build and disciple men and women. That's my greatest hope for you guys. And if you've been coming here to Grace Bible Church and you have no idea what it looks like to be discipled or what it looks like to disciple someone else, let me plead with you to get involved. Uh, none of that occurs on a Sunday morning, all right? Uh, on a Sunday morning, we, we exist to help lead you guys to worship, to help feed you guys, but ultimately to bring you guys further into what we're doing so that you can grow in your faith and ultimately not grow in your faith to such an extent that you can learn to begin to pass that on to someone else. And I think a lot of opportunities that you have on campus are never going to move you that far along in your spiritual life. Not just that you know God, not just that you have a, great, a lot of great opportunities, but you get to a place in your life that you learn to disciple men and women and to leave behind a deposit of faith in men and women who know how to make disciples. Because if you know how to make disciples, then faith extends even through persecution. The greatest thing about the book of Hebrews is it is a church that is under fire. And the question is, will this church emerge from that fire? And as we kind of walk through this, I want you guys to see a couple quick things. One is uh, that these men and women endure through persecution because they're not afraid of evil human kings. Verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child. So if he was ugly, would they have just let him uh, die? I don't know. I thought that's kind of funny. They saw he was a beautiful child and all the other kids were ugly and they died. So uh, no, uh, there's obviously something else behind that. They were not afraid of the king's edict, the last part of verse 23, right? Not just that he was a beautiful child, but they weren't afraid of Pharaoh. Because they weren't afraid of human kings, they weren't afraid of enduring persecution because they were so confident in the purposes of God, they preserved human life. And then it, guess what? It passes down to the next generation, Moses, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Notice, 
I think verse 25 is kind of interesting. There is pleasure in sin. <laughs> Uh, there is a certain level in which sin feels good. The reality of the problem is it doesn't feel good for long and you don't get the reality of what's going to come the next day. <laughs> and then on the heels of sin, on the heels of what seems to be pleasure will come regret and will come shame and will come destruction. And the writer of Hebrews and the writer of the New Testaments are always calling us to realize that sin will come and kill and destroy us, that God has something better for us. And he's not just concerned with the life to come, but he's concerned with the quality of our lives even now and the the kind of intimacy we can have with God himself, which is why that he continues on in verse 26. And notice it's not just that Moses realized that that sin was passing in its pleasures, but verse 26, Moses considered the reproach, the shame of Christ to be greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. He could have had great wealth. He could have had great fame, but he throws that away and he endures the reproach and the shame of Christ himself and the people of Israel with him. Verse 27, by faith, then he leaves Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Moses realized that Pharaoh could, could yield great persecution, great difficulty, great wrath upon him, but he wasn't scared of Pharaoh because he realized there was one who was unseen, who was even a higher king and whose wrath was even more to be feared. Verse 28, therefore, Moses kept the Passover, the sprinkling of the blood, so that he, he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. Some of you guys may know the story of the plagues in Egypt. At the end of the plagues, uh, the angel of death comes. And uh, for the people of Israel, they put a lamb of uh, blood of a lamb up on the, on the doorpost. And the angel of death passes over. And it's a great picture, a great analogy of, of the fact that for uh, seeking shelter from the blood of Christ, we find refuge from the wrath of God. They found it in the Old Testament. It's about a picture of what's coming for you and I. And that the only way to avoid the wrath of the greatest and the highest king is to seek shelter in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted in Jesus Christ. There is no shelter apart from him. Moses, Moses' parents, and those that are going to follow, were not afraid of evil kings because they had fear of the highest king who is, the king of all kings, the sovereign Lord of over all the earth, the Lord of hosts. It is him who they had seen and him who they feared. And as a result, notice what happens. uh, Verse 29, by faith, therefore, seeking refuge and, and shelter from the king of kings, therefore, they passed through the Red Sea, as though they were passing through dry land and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. We're going to find a bunch of examples here of men and women who sought refuge in the king of kings and they found deliverance from human evil kings. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the harlot, did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? You want more examples of those who sought refuge in God and found deliverance and victory even today? I can tell of Gideon, I can tell of Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women even received back their dead by resurrection. He just goes through a laundry list here. And the idea is that for those that would seek refuge in the king of kings, they can find victory and they can find deliverance. And these examples are of men and women who found deliverance even today. And yet the story ends and the passage ends though because there are many who don't find victory today. There are many who seek refuge in the king of kings and yet what they find is torture and evil and difficulty and death. And for those that look like me and and have write books like Your Best Life Now, uh, the reality is I don't think, I think they've missed the latter part of chapter 10 of Hebrews, all right? And what we're going to read does not sound like our best life now, all right? Watch this. There are those that sought victory and found victory, but look what happens to some others. The uh, second half of verse 35, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they may obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. 
They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Uh, That does not sound like the best life now, right? It sure sounds like I sure hope there's something better to come because if this is it, then then our faith is pitied. If this is all that God has, then we ought to be incredibly disappointed. And yet he's going to end, he's going to say in verses 39 and 40 that even for those that saw victory from, from the wrath of evil kings and even those that didn't, both of them, those that saw victory and those that didn't, each of them were waiting for something even better to come. Verse 39, and all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us. All these Old Testament heroes, some of which saw great things happen, saw God do mighty works, even those that did and even those that didn't, even those that were killed for their faith, none of them saw all that God intended. You and I have seen far more than any of them seen even in the greatness of their faith. Because you and I have seen Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected and we have a hope and a certainty that they never saw. And yet even for us, there's even more coming because this isn't all that we anticipate. This isn't all that we hope for. The reality of our lives and the reality of walking with Jesus Christ is is a lifestyle and a walk of faith. You and I cannot see all that God intends now. In fact, all that we do see is often in complete contradictory to what God is wanting to do. Our bodies are weak. They're failing. They're falling apart. You're at your peak, but you get a little older like me and you begin to realize it's going the wrong direction. All right. Uh, Also, you begin to realize even in your dissatisfactions and your disappointments that, that this surely isn't all that God intends. And even as we sang this morning, in the midst of storms, in the midst of difficulties, no matter what's going on, the kindness, the love of God holds us because he's faithful and he's unchanging no matter what we're experiencing. He's unchanging because the fulfillment of his promises are not just in the present, but they're coming in the future. And these were men and women who realized their faith, therefore, moved beyond geographic boundaries. Their faith moved beyond death and was passed to the next generation, and it even moved them through persecution and difficulty. I think it's a great example as we look through chapter 11. It's a great encouragement for you and I, no matter where we, whether we are those experiencing the victory of God or whether we're those in the valley right now wondering where God is, that he is faithful because the fulfillment of his promises is not just in the present. But we're confident and therefore conflicted in the present, waiting for a day to come when he's going to bring fulfillment to all of those things. The question for you this morning is how far does your faith reach? Does it extend beyond death or do you just look in the present? How tightly do you hold the blessings of God or can you hold them loose enough so that you realize that even more of what God intends is coming in the future, not in the present? Does your faith reach even through persecution? Does your faith even reach beyond the disapproval of men and women? Or are you so about appeasing men and women that your faith short circuits and and your confidence in God shuts down because you're so inflamed with a desire to uh, be approved by men, to be approved even at times by evil men and women? My hope for you guys is that you realize that we are looking for the right home, and that's not today. That we're looking to to appease and to serve and to fear the right king, and we don't see him today. He's risen, he's resurrected, and he's yet to return. And we're looking for a day and time when he'll bring fulfillment to all of his promises. And so as we wait that time, we're people living between two worlds. And the great reason that we worship, a great reason that we sing at times is because it's a way to move our heart and a way also to reiterate the truth of God. So we're going to end this morning even in worship to give you guys a chance to reflect again on the promises of God that we do not see yet brought to fulfillment, but that we praise and that we worship and that we declare to be true. Worship is a proclamation of truth that stirs our heart. And it's not just the movement of our lips, but it is that which is intended to call us as a community back to a shared truth, 
a truth that we don't walk out individually, but a truth that we walk out corporately as we come together in worship. So Tyler and the crew is going to come back up and we're going to end this morning just in worship to give you guys a chance to reflect and to have actually a really extended amount of time just to declare your faith, to be reminded of what you believe, to be reminded of the person, the promises, and the purposes of God. Father, we give you great thanks. You are the King of Kings. We stand with you. None can stand against us. You are the mightiest of all. You are the sovereign King of all the earth. Lord, I, Father, I pray that you would give us a great fear of you, a great respect, a great honor of you, and that it would pale in comparison to all others that are in our lives. Father, I pray that you give us a pursuit to know you, a pursuit to make you known. Lord, I pray that you would give us a willingness and a recognition that this is not our home. And I, Father, I pray that we would live in an otherworldly kind of way, So anticipating a world to come, Lord, that we would leave behind those that do the same, that we'd leave behind those that are so confident in you, so confident in your purposes, and they are calling men and women to know you as well. Father, I pray that we would live for you, and that we'd live for your namesake, for your glory, and that you'd allow us to live in a way that would last toward an inheritance that that is eternal, that is supernatural. Father, I thank you that you've gone to prepare a place for us, Lord. I pray that we would look with great anticipation for that place and for that day, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Guys, it's great to have you all here this morning, and we'd love to see you guys at Slotsky's, and we'll see you all next week.